then wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One can make me whole again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. One miracle that we um, are witnessing here this morning is the fact that we're in the fourth week, consecutive week, of talking about money, and the church is still pretty much full. And um, someone should write that down and record it for posterity. That is a, an, a, an interesting thing, because what you hear uh, is that people don't want to hear about money, um, and preachers don't want to talk about money. And I think at some level, both of those things are true, but probably true because of the abuses and misapplications of previous experience. Um, my experience of this month going through this together is that there has been a real sense of resonance. I love that word, resonance. It's like, I, th- I know nothing about music, but I think it's when you hit a particular note and it just reverberates. That, that's what it's kind of felt like in talking to you guys and experiencing this teaching myself over the last few weeks. There's a resonance here. There's a, there's a kind of a shared... Uh, experience of life that um, makes sense as we've been talking about money and possessions and consumerism and materialism and these things. And so praise God for that. I hope, I hope that is true. Now, I'm going to just quickly go through the last three weeks, just a, a sentence on each. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because, as Jimmy said, today is really uh, all about application. It's about principles that I hope uh, if are put into practice, um, will enable us to live more and more like Jesus when it comes to money and possessions and things like that. Now, the problem with that is that this sermon might come across as a seminar, um, or it might e- even worse, it might come across as a kind of legalistic, you know, do these things and then you will be right, or something like that. And I, and I don't want that to be the case. I hope... This fourth week in this series is really just the fourth quarter of one sermon that kind of hangs together. And so if you're listening to this online now, I I really recommend that you go back to the beginning um, to to the first week of this series and then listen through. Unfortunately, last week we had a recording error. We don't have week three, but week one, two, and now this week four should, God willing, hang together as kind of one message. And so I just, I want to avoid you taking this away as kind of the the sum total of what we want you to know about money and stuff. Having said that, we will get into some practical application in just a minute. But first, I just want to take you back to that first week where we tried to introduce a sort of broad picture, uh, a whole kind of worldview, a whole kind of mindset of looking at the material world. And and we we kind of said that we can either see the world with an abundance mindset or we can see it with a scarcity mindset. And it's clear from the first page of the Bible that as far as the Bible is concerned, we ought to be seeing things with an abundance mindset. That is that God as host of creation is generous in laying out everything we need, right? From the beginning, he creates everything out of nothing and everything that humanity has, it has received as a gift from God. And so Jesus sees the world that way. The Bible sees the world that way. Unfortunately, we by nature don't. We are born into this condition of having a scarcity mindset. And we saw that this was really the essence of the deceit of the serpent in the garden. It was to come to Adam and Eve and to take their abundance mindset and introduce into it the concept of scarcity. Like, maybe God isn't a good host, maybe he's holding something back from you. And their response in receiving that lie is to take something for themselves. And from that point on, we all live in this, this constant experience of scarcity, Maybe God's not good, maybe he won't provide, maybe he's holding stuff back from me, therefore I need to accumulate, I need to, as Jesus would say, store up for myself treasures on earth, build bigger barns, right, accumulate, and it's all out of this false way of seeing the world. So I believe that all through the scriptures, God is calling us back to this abundance mindset where we see God as an abundant and, um, and uh, generous host. 
Then we went into the second week, which was kind of a, uh, what I was trying to do there was pretty much answer the question, like, what are the forces in the world around us that are reinforcing the scarcity mindset that distract us from and knock us off course uh, in terms of having the biblical abundance mindset that God wants us to have? And it was really an expose of the last hundred years of marketing and advertising, which is all designed to get us to want more and more and more and to be satisfied with nothing. That is, to be perpetually discontent. So the, the, the really bad infomercials that are on during the day where it's shot in black and white and the woman is vacuuming and she's, oh, I can't, this vacuuming is so terrible. And then she gets the steam mop and it's all beautiful and she's made up and it's like, da, da, da. Like that is marketing in its purest form. That, that, that's a terrible, you know, bad art version of it. But every other type of advertisement is just a bigger budget version of that. All right? It's... You are in black and white having a terrible time. If you get this, you will suddenly be whole, right? That is the essential message. And it reinforces the idea that we cannot be content with what God has given us, that we have to keep grabbing and accumulating. And so that whole message in week two is sort of centered around that dynamic. And, and hopefully, if we understand it, we can unmask it and then kind of um, we can uh, deconstruct the propaganda. Um, and instead turn away from that mindset and towards having the mind of Christ when it comes to money and possessions and accumulation and consumerism and all of those things. And then last week, we really um, focused in on the teaching of Jesus when it comes to money and possessions. He, he spoke frequently about it. Some people reckon about 25% of his teaching was on this very issue um, and, and we saw that what he's doing with us as his apprentices, he's really bringing us to a point over and over again where we come to not only a fork in a road but a T intersection. And he calls us to go with him and to forsake everything we've come to cherish. He calls us to, some of us, to sell all possess- our possessions and give them to the poor. He calls all of us to not accumulate treasures on earth but rather to accumulate treasures in heaven and he said the way you do that is by giving and giving and giving out of what God has given you and so this fork in the road thing or this T intersection thing the more I think about it the more that's a more apt description this I mean this this is the nature of Jesus teaching he's always forcing us into this this decision and particularly when it comes to money and things like that and I think what we need to know, and Jesus was really clear on this, all right? He wasn't running a get-rich-quick scheme. He was not trying to get as many followers as he possibly could. He is not, he, like, modern social media marketing would hate him, right? He's, he's just losing followers all the time, and he, he's not bothered by it, right? He, he says things like, before you follow me, you have to count the cost, you first have to be prepared to daily take up your cross, an instrument of execution, and only then can you follow me. He says these things over and over and over again. Now, my experience of life when I choose the narrow way, when I choose the cross-shaped way, is that it often brings me into conflict with people who have chosen the other way. Even, it even sometimes brings us into conflict with fellow brothers and sisters who are seeking to follow the Jesus way. This is... This is something we need to be aware of. Before we get into here's how we can live to be more like Christ in these areas, we need to know this might, if you go ahead and live this radical, Jesus-centered life, it might bring you into conflict with the people around you, even people who are seated here nodding their heads here this morning. I'll give you an example. When Renee and I were getting married, we're going to be married 14 years this month. 14 years ago, when we decided to get married, we decided that instead of having a gift register for our engagement party, we would have, we would just send out tier gift catalogues to everyone. We, we, we got together really around a whole bunch of stuff, like the normal attraction stuff, but also around this really quite, quite passionate shared sense of responsibility for the poor and, and calling to doing what we could to alleviate suffering in the world. And so we thought, that's a, perf- like, that's a great idea. We do not need eight toasters, right? And so we, we didn't, and 
and so we just sent out the catalog. And we we're even we we're even really polite about it. We were like, if you don't want to do this, that's okay. You can give us a toast or whatever. But even after all of that, some people we knew, and not just the you know the bad non-Christian people, like all the different people we knew, some of them got really irritated by that. And I still don't know why. All I know is sometimes when you choose to follow Jesus into the radical territory he leads you into, it irritates some people. It annoys some people. And Jesus said in uh, John 15, he said, uh, do I have that, John 15? Yeah, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own, as it is You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so there's a principle there that we just need to be aware of, that sometimes following Jesus into his, his will and his ways, and I think particularly when it comes to money and material things, it can elicit a negative response and even between husband and wife or or parents and children and we just need to be aware of that from the beginning but what we need to know is and I'm really convinced of this everything God commands us and calls us to is for our good I didn't used to think that by the way but I'm really convinced of it now everything God commands us and calls us to is for our good it's the way of life Jesus said I come that you have may have life and have it abundantly He invites us to take his yoke upon ourselves. That is the the body of his teaching, his way of living onto ourselves because it's easy and it's light. We find rest for our souls. He says you should do this because I'm gentle and I'm inviting you into abundant life. Just on this, I, I I love this about, you know the interaction Jesus has with the rich young man? And the rich young man wants to know what he needs to do to inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you've got to keep commandments. And he says, I've kept them all. And then it says, and I've missed this so many times, but it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Now the thing is, right, in giving him that call, which was too much for him to bear, and he went away disappointed. But in giving him that radical call, it it came from what kind of posture? He looked at him and loved him. And so if you hear God this morning by his spirit calling you, convicting you, right, commanding you to do anything, you need to know that it comes as he looks at you and loves you. That's good. Keep that in mind. All right. Here's... Here's how I want to kind of tee this whole thing up. And it's by kind of undermining um, a, a kind of a received wisdom that I've heard people talk about um, more and more in recent times. And, and, his, and, and Stephen Pinker wrote a book recently that sort of encapsulates this whole idea, and that is that the world is better than it's ever been. And... and and so, so he writes this book saying, basically, everything's getting better, everything's progressing, you know, there's less famine, there's less wars, blah, 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 blah. And on the metrics he uses, it's a fair argument. The problem is, he, as a materialist, he completely ignores our spirit. He completely ignores the non-material metrics that actually Jesus is most, uh, most concerned with. And so that led a guy named Greg Easterbrook to, to write a really fascinating book called the, the Progress Paradox, where he's trying to wrestle with this, like, if everything's better, at least in the West, in Western countries, then why is everyone miserable? He says this, Greg Easterbrook, he says, adjusting for population growth, 10 times as many people in Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression, or that is, unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause than did half a century ago. And he says, Westerners have ever more of everything except happiness. I read that and it just cut through me. What he's saying is, he's like, 
Compared to 50 years ago, 10 times more people in rich countries like ours have unipolar depression, constantly feeling sad and bad without any specific cause. How is that possible? We have more stuff than ever. We have less disease than ever, right? And, and I think we've been talking about the reason over these four weeks. The reason is that the model that we're using trying to propagate happiness leaves us perpetually discontent, and he says, depressed. Now, this, that is a little foray into where Jimmy's going to pick up next week. He's going to lead us into a new series, which isn't a departure from the current series at all. It's sort of a continuation, broadening our scope, looking at the way of Jesus, not just when it comes to money, but life, all of life. And he's going to introduce that to us by trying to diagnose this problem. Like, whatever we're doing isn't working. Why? So hang out for that next week. For now, we're going to get into some of these practices of trying to live out the way of Jesus when it comes to money and possessions. So practice number one, let's move. Let's move. Uh, practice number one, we, we need to receive every gift as good. Receive every gift as good. This is going back to where we began, right? This is about cultivating the abundance mindset. It is astonishing to me just how much agency we have in shaping the way we see the world. Modern psychology is developing this, these ideas very, very quickly about the power of the brain to alter the way we see things, the plasticity of the brain, the way it can adapt to, the, to whatever inputs we plug into it, the power of ending each day with two or three points of thanksgiving. That over a 28, 28 day period, they say there is a significant increase in happiness and well being for people who do that. Just like the, the list goes on and on and on. And so Christians have always believed this. In fact, it's woven in not in, only into the new covenant, but the old covenant. That as human beings, we ought to have this rhythm, this sort of constant breathing in, breathing out of receiving everything as a gift from God. To look at any situation and to be looking for the good to be received. The hand of God, the fingerprints of God on this or that situation. This is something that Paul picks up in, in the first letter to Timothy in chapter 4. He says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what? Thanksgiving. That's the difference maker. Since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. It's a whole way of seeing the world as an abundant provision of God for us to be received with thanksgiving. Now, as we've seen, and I've said again, our materialist mindset that we're all conditioned to take around, like take hold of, to input, to imbibe, to be saturated with, that fosters the opposite. It fosters perpetual discontent. And again, I want to say this is all about perspective, and you need to make a decision of the will which is is required to be repeated over and over and over again in the face of billions of dollars spent on advertising, marketing, the 4,000 ads you see every day, right, whatever. In the face of all of that, you will need to be very vigilant in cultivating this kind of mindset. I'm receiving this as the abundant provision of God. I'm receiving the good as gift. And it's all about mindset. Give you an example of how this worked for me yesterday. I spent seven hours at Melbourne Zoo with my boy Judah. We saw every single enclosure, all right? And both of us could do it all again today, right? We love it. Uh, he was given as a gift for his birthday back in October a little um, experience thing with the giant tortoises. And so I think I got a photo of it. There we are. <laughs> 
pig in mud, right? He just loves it, both of us. Um, in spite of what was a great day, there was a point where we had gone to two, maybe three enclosures in a row where we couldn't see animals. And I said something, born out of my perpetual discontent. I said, are there any animals anywhere in this zoo? Right? Cynical. Scarcity mindset. And Judah's response was, Dad, we've seen heaps of animals. <laughs> Which we had. And we had the exact same experience for seven hours, right? All that was different was perspective. It was mindset. God wants us to have this abundance mindset. Everything we receive from him is a gift to be enjoyed. This is an invitation into enjoyment, right? It's to joy, to happiness. Again, 1 Timothy and, and chapter 6, Paul says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich. I think he would probably say all of us. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. That's it. Do you see both sides of it? Put your hope in the giver and then you can enjoy the gift. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Number two, right? First, receive every gift as good. Number two, freely give what you've been freely given. This is another mindset thing, by the way. This is another mindset thing. You can have the mindset of what I have has been hard-earned, accumulated by blood, sweat, and tears. With that understanding, again, reinforced by everything you've ever heard ever, with that mindset, well, then, if I give even a little bit, I'm still giving out of what's rightfully mine. So I can feel good about myself even when I'm being really stingy. If, however, everything I have is a free gift of God, which is mine only for the short time on, on earth to be stewarded for his purposes, suddenly I'm, I'm not only more generous, I'm more free. I've been liberated from that clenched fist. I have to hold on to what is mine against all costs. The clenched fish mentality is mainly why we hate paying tax, by the way. Some of it's because we have a bloated government that is way overfunded. We can talk about this some other time. This isn't in my notes. But, but a, a large part of it, <laughs> oh man. I love, I love you guys who work for the government, by the way. Uh, just forget I just said that. Look, this Irrespective of your politics, by the way, most of us, if not all of us, have this false mentality. What I have, hard-earned, blood, sweat and tears. Therefore, even if I give a little, that's generous, right? At least I'm not like the guy next door who just spends all his money on motorbikes, you know? Like, so it's very easily easy for us to trick ourselves and it comes back to mindset. The mindset we ought to have is that God abundantly provides everything we have for our enjoyment. And so continuing on from that passage, let me just reread that, that verse and then the following couple of verses, all right? Verse 17 and, and then not to 19. He says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And then he goes on, Instruct them to do what is good. What's good? To be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. And then he just takes Jesus' teaching, cut and paste storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. This is an invitation to life. 
liberation. And it's all seated in what we do with our money. I just love, and you've heard me preach from this before probably, I love the way that King David says it. There's this lengthy passage in 1 Chronicles uh, 29, and it's, it's, uh, it's Israel gathered with King David before them, and they have raised a phenomenal amount of money in order to build the temple that will serve them as God's dwelling place. And uh, David's son Solomon is going to be the one who ends up seeing it through and dedicating it. But in the meantime, David has overseen the kind of fundraising program, and they've just got this... I mean, some people have done the maths, I can't remember what it was, but it's just a phenomenal amount of money. And David prays this prayer to God, and it's a, a prayer of thanksgiving to God that they've been able to give to God. And this is the way he says it. It's very poetic, very like David, the songwriter. He says, Who am I, Lord? Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. That's the whole thing. If you believe that like he did, the mindset you have will completely flip. Suddenly you'll be free to give generously because everything I'm giving has just come out of God's hand anyway. It's not out of my clenched fist. Freely give what you've been freely given. Now the next question everyone has is how much? How much should I give? And my favorite passage when it comes to this question is 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where Paul is calling the Corinthians, who are pretty stingy, that they're really good with spiritual gifts, they're quite mature in the faith, but they're not great in giving. There's this great need to serve the poor in Jerusalem who are starving. He gives the example of the Macedonians who have nothing and have given beyond their means. And then he says this to them, knowing their stinginess. He says, each man or woman should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You want to be a cheerful giver? You need to have the mindset that everything you're giving is giving out of his hand. The question about how much, Paul says, you should decide in your heart. And that's true. And then I'm going to come along and say, I reckon you should give 10% of your income away. I reckon you should give 10% of your income away, not because I believe that you're under the old covenant law and that you should obey every jot and tittle, right? Not because of that, but because I think the old covenant law was a good one. I think the principle of the tithe was a good one. The giving of 10% was to make provision for God's priests so that they could minister to people, uh, the people of God, without having to do other work. That principle still functions today in our stipendary system, in our church. The actual tithe, the, again, the, the maths nerds have done the figures, and the actual giving of Old Covenant people was 23.4%, was something like that in overall giving, not just to the temple, but to the poor and so on. So if you want to get really, really, you know, letter of the law, go to 24.3 or whatever I said. Um, but I think, I'm just saying, standing up the front here saying, 10% is what we do. And so I'm going to tell you what I, we do because we do it because I think it's good. And I think probably, at the very least, in, t in, in light of everyone has decided in their heart what to give, when you're trying to determine what is God calling me to give, it's not likely that he's asking you to give less than what he was asking his old covenant people to give. With all of the added benefits that we have that they didn't have. And I don't just mean materially, I mean spiritually. So I think 10% functions in a few good ways. I think that if everyone gave if from this church 10% to not just the church but to kingdom work, there would be an explosion, an abundance of resources that would float everyone's ministry boat 
and echo out, right, into new church plants and overseas missions. I mean, it would just be phenomenal. I also think it has another purpose, which is giving that portion away looses us a little bit more from the clenched fist. It moves us a little further into the abundance mindset, into the dependence on God mindset. If you really want to push me about it, I think 10% are probably a good set of training wheels that will push you further and further away from hoarding everything for yourself. I like the way John Piper puts it. He wrote a little article called, um, have I got the quote there? Something like, uh, toward the tithe and beyond. And and this is what he says. There is an, uh, an absolute correlation between faith in the promises of God and peace of mind in giving away what we may think we need but don't. It's a complicated sentence, but you get it? He says, every time you doubt that you can live on 90% of your income, let the glorious promise of God strengthen your faith from Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, I've just imperiled myself greatly by putting the 10% thing out there and we don't have time to nuance it. If you want to talk more about it, we can. Um, Far be it from me to burden you with a a burden of conscience that I don't believe God necessarily has for you. Um, But let it be known that while for some of us God isn't calling us to give 10%, it may be that for some of us he's calling us to give it all. Number three. Learn what you're out of step with in the way of Jesus and bring it to the light. This is a general principle for Christian living. If you're an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus following him, then in all things, life is a learning about where I'm out of step with him as my Lord, as my rabbi, and a coming back into step with him by letting it be known where I'm out of step with him. As long as it's hidden, as long as that part of my life is hidden in the dark, then it will fester, it will grow. It's the opposite of plants, right? It grows in the dark. Now, particularly when it comes to money, material things, consumerism, where we're out of step, we need to bring it into the light. So in Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now we've looked at that over and over again, particularly from the point of view, which is just self-evident to us, that our life isn't about what we own. The stuff we own isn't our identity. But go back to the start. He says, watch out. Why does he say watch out? Because he's worried it's going to sneak up on us. He's worried. He knows that greed is the kind of sin that can creep. Committing adultery with your secretary doesn't creep, right? You know all about it. Greed is different. What greed does, again, manipulates your mindset so that you focus on the people who are less generous than you and therefore reinforces the fact that, well, if anyone's generous, it's me. That's why he says, watch out. And he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I love that. Because there, there are different kinds of greed. Next slide. Here's a couple of, I mean, there's way more than this. But to put it as a kind of dichotomy, All kinds of greed, it may be self-absorbed spending, right? It's all for me, it's all about me, it's all about my accumulation. It may be self-absorbed spending to the exclusion of kingdom work and those in need, or it may be self-absorbed refusal to spend based on a lack of trust in God's provision. See, I got you either way. Be on your guard against all, all kinds of greed. Learn where you're out of step with the way of Jesus and bring it to the light. Another way of saying this is, respectfully, don't trust yourself with this stuff. Just don't. Don't trust yourself 
to manage your whole economic life well. Bring it into the light. Bring it into community. Bring it into one close friend, two, three close friends, maybe a small group. Bring it into the light and ask them, can you help me? Can you keep me accountable? I don't have a budget. Do you have one? Can you help me do that? Sign up to a Christians Against Poverty course that we run here that teaches you literally how to do the budget thing, right? There are so many things we can do in community that will overcome our own individual foibles and failings when it comes to this stuff. I've got a quote by someone, Andrew Perryman. I haven't read the book Faith, Faith, Health and Prosperity. It might be complete garbage, but this is true and good. He says, we cannot ignore the fact that wealth is a positive resource. It's a gift, right? We cannot ignore the fact that wealth is a positive resource. It is a hazardous resource, certainly, but within a redeemed community, you guys. Within a redeemed community, there should be the wisdom and grace available to handle wealth responsibly. That's beautiful. I love that. We can do that. Number four. I'm going to zip through these ones, all right? Cultivate a deep appreciation for creation. I got that from Richard Foster in his famous book, Celebration of Discipline, Um, And I took it out of this talk over and over and over again because I thought it was just a bit too left field. But I I kept coming back to it because for me, it's so fundamental to getting all this stuff right. And I don't understand it fully. but But if you cultivate a deep appreciation for creation, there's something that happens in your head and your heart that changes how you view money and consumerism. It just, it does. I know this is anecdotal, but for me, it does. I think it's something about the fact that the world we live in almost all of the time is a bubble constructed of consumerism. And so if you force yourself to step out of that and you go and walk through Werribee Gorge and you do not see one advertisement and there is not one bottle shop or TAB, right? And most of the people there aren't trying to like, get it out in high fashion. All right? If you do that and you sweat and you walk up the hills, right, there's something about it that starts to deconstruct the, the dragon of consumerism. I don't have much more to say about it than that. Give it a shot. See if it's part, part of the antidote that God wants you to have in all of these things. Uh, number five... This is something we talked about in week two. Unmask the propaganda of advertising. I won't go over it all over again. Go back to uh, the message called the propaganda of discontent. right? Um, but that is a fun game for you to play as a family or as a couple or as, I don't know, on your own. I do it. Deconstruct the propaganda of advertising. Every ad you see, just instead of thinking, do I need that? Um, or more likely, do I want that? Rather than that, say, where is the lie? I know it's in there. Where is it? I did this the other night. I was sitting with my boy watching State of Origin with my younger brother and my dad, and they ended up, my younger brother and my dad ended up annoyed with me because every ad break, I was just, all right, all right, Judah, let's do it. And, and every ad that came on, I'd be like, lie! I think it's fun. And I think it's, again, it's part of the same antidote. Deeper appreciation for creation, yes. Deconstruction of propaganda, yes. Keep doing it. Write it down. Put it on social media up until the point you decide to quit social media, all right? Number six. Uh, Again, this is risky and it's not thus saith the Lord, but I would say avoid, if possible avoid, buy now, pay later, Schemes, right? We're getting real practical day to day stuff now. Avoid those things if you can. Why? Because I think ultimately they are constructed to perpetuate the machine of materialism, consumerism, and also I believe they take advantage of the very people who need the most help. 
when it comes to managing money. There is a reason, I think, that in both Old Testament and New Testament, there is warnings against, if not commands against, usury, right? Charging interest. Not just exorbitant interest, any interest. And it's because of God's heart for the vulnerable. It's because for the last few thousand years, it's been vulnerable people who have been taken advantage of by people who have much. Okay? The same is true with... Oh, don't get me started on the lottery. That is, that is a poor tax, if ever there was one. That's another sermon as well. But I, but I would extend it right through to afterpay. Right? The, this explosion of purchasing things on afterpay, this $4 billion Australian business that has just gone through the roof in popularity. I, I found a couple of articles that were kind of seeking to deconstruct some of this stuff, and I'll just read you from a couple of them. First, the Sydney Morning Herald, they had an article called The $4 Billion Buy Now, Pay Later Startup Built on a Legal Loophole. There's all kinds of reasons why these people are avoiding regulation based on some legal loopholes. Um, and and, and the, the woman interviewed, um, a 23-year-old disability worker based in Melbourne, said, I'm pretty bad when it comes to shopping. If I like it, I'll afterpay it. She goes on, when I started using it, I was getting good money from work. I could afford the repayments. I, was always made sure, I always made sure I would do it the day after or two days after I got paid. But then I had problems with my car and I wasn't working. I'd used pretty much everything I had to fix my car. I fell behind. The Guardian in the UK picked up on this article and then um, put together some statistics that ASIC, the, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, came up with, and, and, and here's what they've said. that Basically, these kinds of schemes, BNPL schemes, uh, encourage consumers to make impulse purchases. That's the one thing you want to avoid at all costs, any impulsive purchase. When you get to the checkout, and all of those sweets are just waiting for you to pick up. I think I really do need some Skittles after all. Blind, just go around like this, right? Hold your hand flat above your nose and just ignore all of that like it was... The, yeah, anyway. So here's what they've said. Here's what the researchers found. Next slide. 81% of users agreed buy now, pay later arrangements allowed them to buy more expensive items than what they could afford in a single payment. Yes. Next, 70% agreed that it allowed them to be more spontaneous. That's not something you want when it comes to spending any amount of money, all right? 64% um, agreed that it enabled them to spend more than they normally would, and 16% um, had either become overdrawn, delayed bill payments, or borrowed more money, right? More debt, more chains, more slavery because of the buy now, pay later thing. Now, this is not a law. We bought a house and we have a mortgage, right? I'm not saying you, can, you, you must avoid this like the plague, but we've got to be way more smart than most of us generally are with this kind of thing. If we want to be in a position where we can freely give what we've been freely given. One piece of advice from our partners at Christians Against Poverty when it comes to this thing, Dan Lane says, overall, we would say to people that if you can't avoid if you can't afford the product today, why do you think you can afford it in 30, 60 or 90 days' time? Just some good common sense. We ready for one more? We don't have time for one more. Can I uh, move a motion that we extend this period of time by a few minutes? All right, last thing and certainly not least. This actually is a little bit of a grenade that I'm hoping will just explode in here and we will spend the rest of our lives pursuing, all right? All of this stuff. But this, this one is particularly hot, all right? Number seven, reject anything that propagates the oppression of others. What we do with our money very often propagates, that is, breeds the oppression of others. And most of us remain blind to it because that is far more convenient. I can sleep at night if I don't know what, how I'm 
doing it's the it's the sausage factory thing right i know this is completely overwhelming uh, and so i want to encourage us if you have never considered this how you're purchasing habits affect the well-being of other people start small right as with everything good start start small and i would start with clothing purchases this is a good one to start with here's here's a couple of figures for you at this point as far as i can tell from the statistics available one in six people in the world works in the garment industry one in six people in the world that's 1.5 billion people works making clothes that's 1.5 billion people, right, around the world work to make clothes. Less than 2% of them make a living wage. So just let that sink in. 1.5 billion people are making your clothes. Less than 2% of them earn enough money doing it to live. Never mind the conditions they're working in to make this stuff. How did that happen? Well, it happened because we stopped buying clothes every now and then, well-made, paying good and reasonable prices for them, and went into this weird fashion thing. This has always boggled my mind. Does anyone understand fashion trends? Who, who, who decided all of a sudden that we all, all, out these, all us men had to roll up the cuffs on our jeans? Who, who came up with that? I have no idea. The reason it exists is to propagate the purchasing of items. Otherwise, that jumper you bought six years ago, would, you'd still be wearing it. That doesn't make any money for anyone. Now, if you're going to have a process, you, you, I mean, if you're going to have a successful system in which you're getting people to buy stuff all the time, then you have to make it damn cheap. And so that's why you get your T-shirt for six bucks at Kmart, because... It's made possible by the 1.5 billion not making enough to live. So this is, this is one occasion where it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to feel a little bit of guilt and shame in church. Even if you didn't know about it, you do now. I'll give you one resource. I, really, I love this resource. It's Baptist World Aid. I have friends that work at Baptist World Aid, and they've got a, a website. This is the live website here. Okay? They've, on their website, they've got an ethical fashion guide. Every year, they rate brands from A plus to F. And you can just scroll through and see all the brands that you should never buy again while writing a letter to them saying why you're never going to buy them again. So Baptist World Aid, it's Australian, it's, very, like it's exactly what we need if we're going to pursue this kind of thing. Here's the thing, in order to do this, you're going to need to pay 40 bucks for your t-shirt instead of seven. But it's probably going to be well made, and the people who made it are going to be eating tonight. And in order to pay 40 bucks for a t-shirt, you say, well, I'm never going to pay 40 bucks for a t-shirt. You can if you're not buying a new t-shirt every week, all right? That's going to last you a couple of years, maybe five. I mean, I'm, I did not do this deliberately. I just realised as I got up here and looked at the microphone, I do have holes in this T-shirt. So this, I need to get better made T-shirts, all right? So anyway, this is a thing. This is a significant thing. And it's, th this thing is no less biblical and theological than the first thing I said about receiving everything good as a gift. This is not the lefty thing that we leave to the lefty churches. This is just Jesus, right? This is the way of Jesus. He's calling us to more and more radical ways of thinking and acting when it comes to money. I'm conscious and really, really very overly conscious of the fact that that's just a whole lot that's a lot to take on, and I don't want this at all to be overwhelming. I just want it, like Jesus, I want this to be an invitation to life. And so um, one way that I hope 
I hope that we are left with a kind of uh, an atmosphere of his gracious leading in these things is, um, is if I just read some of his words. I love what Jimmy did at the beginning, asking us to close our eyes, take a breath. Um, let's do that again. Ready? Big, deep breath in. Just listen to your teacher. Listen to Jesus. Close your eyes if it helps. And then we'll sing his praises. He says to us here, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, our prayer for a long time now leading up to this series has been that you would lead us every step of the way, that you would reveal good news to us, that you would invite us into the abundant life. And I believe that you've been doing that. And so I just thank you, praise you. It's so good to us. We receive everything that's true that's been said throughout this series. We receive it as a gift. We receive it with thanksgiving. And now I pray, Lord, by your mercy, by your grace, Please continue to lead us into life and truth. May this not be a flash in the pan, trendy kind of thing to think about for a week or two, but may you lead us into an all of life, all about Jesus, following of you, listening to your voice. As we move into the next six weeks or, or, or maybe more, looking at specifically what it means to live the way of Jesus, please continue to bless us. Continue to reveal your will and your ways to us. We thank you. We're here because we love you. We want to be made more like you. Please do all of these things and more. For your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.